Okay, welcome everybody to the Film House, the podcast, episode three. Uh, I am Josh Dean. I am the director of the Film House in Greenville, South Carolina, where our goal is to bring great movies to the people. Um, today, we are going to be discussing Defy Bloods, the new movie by Spike Lee. And joining me uh, are uh, film scholar Sydney Wilde Harris. Hi. Uh, filmmaker uh, Kirsten White. Hey. And filmmaker John Ferrer. Hey. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm just going to jump right in. And first to make sure everyone watched the movie, right? Yes. Roger that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so step one's complete. Um, uh, so who, who would like to give their opinion first? Um, do a free-for-all here. Um, I literally just finished watching the movie. I wanted it to be fresh on my brain before I. Oh, perfect. Podcast. Okay. Um, and wow. Emotional roller sure. coaster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for sure. Um, there's so many things to say, but I think I'll start about just Spike Lee and his, how his um, films mostly focus on um, identity mm -hmm. uh, and what that looks like for mostly like black Americans okay. And, you know, in this film, we are in Vietnam and these characters are trying to, you know, uh, find their friends' remains and also, you know, um, find some gold that they had buried previously. Oh, and um, actually, uh, so, hold on. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to say, yeah, there will be spoilers in this. So if you're, oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're at home listening, turn this off, go watch the movie come back because we're going to be talking all about every part of it. So, okay. I'm sorry. Please continue. No, that was so necessary <laughs> to say. I'm like, how, how much right. can I give you? <laughs> um, and I, I just, I think it really talks about watching the whole film. You know, Spike Lee always adds so much historical perspective mm -hmm. as you're watching a film. It's almost like it's an educational, uh, it's an educational, like fictional mm -hmm. film. Um, which is rare. Um, and that's why I love about Spike Lee so much. But I appreciate, I appreciate one thing that kept coming to me was the idea of double consciousness. Mm. You know, W.E.B.'s Du Bois term, double consciousness, which I think it can be summed up in the quote, uh, to be African-American is to be African without memory and American without privilege. Oh. Speak on it. <laughs> and, right. I think that is just, you know, when you're watching this movie, I, as a black uh a studies scholar, you know, someone who graduated from Spelman College. Shout out to <laughs> Spelman. So my Morehouse, my Morehouse brother, Spike Lee, um, he always pays homage to Spellhouse, right? And in the movie, he's done that several mm -hmm. times. Um, and as someone who just like resonates with that idea of like, what does it mean to be African-American and how, how do we navigate these spaces mm -hmm. while also dealing with so much oppression in our own nation mm. uh, and in our own institutions. Like, what does that look like? Um, and I think, I think this movie answers a lot of those questions and tackles it in a very entertaining and violent, <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, but knowledgeable um, way. And these, it's, it's beautiful. Excellent. Yeah. I so it. yeah, I definitely, I want to dive into the deeper themes and, uh, uh, all that like uh just let's do like a little uh 
just surface level. So like, did you enjoy the movie? <laughs> like it just isn't uh, watching an entertainment experience. Yeah. Oh my God. It definitely kept me on mm-hmm. in my seat, you know, on the edge of my seat. Um, and it was, it was great to watch this as a film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess like looking like more introspectively. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and we will get there. I promise. I just, yeah, I was, I was going to move from just the surface to get yeah deeper and deeper. Uh, and, You'll be okay. right at the deep end, and I was like, "Hold on, hold on, can I cinematography for a second? But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. no, absolutely, excellent. Yes, I want to talk about all those points uh, coming up. Um, any standout uh, like performances or uh, directorial touches that that stood out to anybody? Right. Um, also, beautifully said, Kirsten. I I second everything to piggyback <laughs> off of what Kirsten just said. I second everything mm-hmm. that she just mentioned, but. Um, Delroy Lindo. Oh my God! Giving an incredible standout performance, and and honestly, I've been, I I watched it um, a couple days ago, and then I rewatched it again last night, and his performance, of course, stuck out through my initial viewing, but sure. I it was through my like reading about the film and wanting to see, you know, put my feelers out to see what the general consensus was, what people mm-hmm. are saying about this film. The fact that he is uh, the protagonist, it's like, I guess he is our anti-hero or a hero <laughs> protagonist or, or problematic hero protagonist, <laughs> but he really is. And, he, and we follow him and his and his comrades on this journey. Mm. You know, he, kind of, he kind of actually is our point of view character. So he gives such an incredibly nuanced performance, considering there are so many aspects of his character that are, if not problematic, uh, interesting to reconcile. So... <laughs> His yeah, relationship absolutely. with his son, specifically. His relationship to the Vietnamese people, also, specifically. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, incredibly powerful. Yeah, I keep hearing awards talk already, uh, even though if I don't even know if awards are going to happen this year. Just, <laughs> uh, but uh, Right. Yeah, Lindo is definitely in the conversation now uh, from this movie, for sure. And I haven't what was the last thing you've seen him in? Like, I feel like I haven't seen him in forever for some reason. Well, um, what was interesting is I, I first of all, I, I liked it a lot too. And um, uh, I watched, I actually watched three Spike Lee movies in a row over like two days. Like uh-huh. didn't watch <laughs> oh, cool. it. Didn't watch anything else in between because I wanted to catch up on some stuff that I hadn't seen. So I watched uh, Crooklyn and Clockers and this movie and oh, I wow. didn't know ahead of time, but Delroy Lindo is a major part of literally all three movies. So I've watched, mm. you know, I think seven hours of Delroy Lindo over the last couple <laughs> of years. So he's sure. definitely my dude right now because he's <laughs> he's not a guy that you hear a lot about um, just conversationally away from Spike Lee movies. And just watching him perform for so long, it's definitely a huge reminder of just like, good work. This guy's like just a crazy talent. Um, yeah, but I don't know what he what he would have been most known for, like as of like two weeks ago, because this this movie just came <laughs> out. And um, I feel, yeah, yeah, no, I feel like we're definitely in like a Delroy Lindo Renaissance period right now. That's <laughs> been taking place over the last I don't know seven days. The Lindo Sons. <laughs> the Lindo Sons. He has always been an actor that has been like present everywhere, just omnipresent in so many different works. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also interesting that you picked Clockers and Crooklyn, because I think of Spike Lee's films, he has been in Clockers, Crooklyn, and Malcolm X. So <laughs> right. you don't want to, like you, you just watched his like filmography with, with Spike Lee. Yeah, and, um, and actually, he, I watched Malcolm X just a couple weeks ago. So yeah, it's I guess I've seen all the Delroys of the Spike Lee movies now. <laughs> yeah, 
it's interesting. He's he's just been in. He's one of those actors that I'm happy is finally getting name recognition, but has been around it, at the very least my entire life um, mm. as like a as a popular working actor. Um, yeah, he's in one of my favorite. He's, uh, he's, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Your favorite what? Oh, uh, one of my favorite Mammoth movies, Heist, uh, with Gene oh, Hammond. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. No, he's amazing in that. Yeah. That's right. He was. Um, but sorry, I, I just want to give a shout out to that movie because I love that movie. But anyway, continue, John. Well, I didn't mean to... He 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 has very specific, amazing talent where he kind of is able to flip between um, sides like very almost imperceptibly. And what's amazing mm-hmm. is the Five Bloods like cashes in on that like crazy like um in in mm-hmm. crooklyn he's like an extremely like warm um w- w- crooklyn was amazing um just as a side thought that, that's just a great it wasn't what i thought it was going to be at all because I, I i kind of imagined a movie about um crime in brooklyn because it's called crooklyn <laughs> and it's actually this incredibly like tender nostalgic yeah. family and it's great and, and del Rolinda plays the patriarch who's clearly based on Spike Lee's actual dad because he wrote that movie with his uh, brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. And uh, he's Has just... Alfred- yeah. Yeah, Alfred Water is just crazy. It's, you can't even like... And, and then um, what's her... Zelda Smith, I think, plays the the protagonist who's like a young girl. And it's just one of those like... Zelda Harris. Zelda Harris, I'm sorry. Um, one of the greatest child performances ever. It's just great. Um, but he he's this very warm and he, he has problems in the movie, but he's basically a really good guy and then in mm-hmm. um clockers he's a fake good guy that's fairly obvious but he becomes very menacing as the movie goes on and so five bloods really like it takes that ability he has to kind of show mm-hmm. those two sides and really like amps it all the way up because you 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 go back and forth and and you feel this through his friends just the loving him and hating him simultaneously kind of at all times mm-hmm. yeah um well, it's funny. Uh, I, I I've already forgotten who said it, but the 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 that uh, Paul, right? That's his name in the movie, right? Paul. I yeah. I always yeah. try not to refer to people like it's not yeah. <laughs> in the movie. It's it's Paul in the movie, but yeah, um, that uh, his son uh, David seems he was my uh, point of view character, I guess, because uh, even though he doesn't come in till what like twenty minutes into the movie, I feel like, or 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 so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what a way. Right, exactly. Yes, yeah, so I was like, wait, who's this guy? And I was like, oh, oh. Um, but yeah. Tension here. But I haven't seen um, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Have, have any of you guys seen that? I have not. Okay. I haven't yet. It's, and that's, that's the dream. That's the plan is to watch it. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, though. Exactly. Yeah. If, if, the film house had been open in Greenville with we would have shown that that's like one of my go-to movies. Like if we had been open, we would have shown this movie. Okay. I was yeah. just wondering, cause apparently that was his big breakthrough movie was that, and that was only like a year ago. So I didn't know, um, kind of, uh, where he had come from as an actor, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, so you guys are scholars and filmmakers. Um, what did you think about this movie just from like a structural point of view, like the story, how the story was built? Like, did it work? Would, would you have done anything differently? How did it play for you guys? Um, I feel like initially when I first sat down to watch it and I was maybe an hour and 45 in, 
and mm-hmm. I saw like how much more do I have of this? Like, what is <laughs> right. going on? That it felt like a behemoth at a certain point, but it, it really is this incredible war epic. Um, mm-hmm. So I at one point was like I think a little bit you know trepidatious about the fact that wow this is this is a long this is a long epic of a movie, but at the same time it is such an important story. I ended mm-hmm. up reading that this is perhaps the first uh, war fix or Vietnam War film that centers black soldiers. Oh wow! Yeah, this, um, this is the first. So there was a movie. I was going to bring this up at the end. Has anybody seen Dead Presidents? Yes. Yeah, uh, the Hughes brothers like that. That was my only antecedent for this was that that was a movie about black soldiers in Vietnam. Kind of. It had parts of that, but it was more about their life after the war. But uh, right. the, other than that, no, I was I was racking my brain to think of another movie Thanks. that focused on the black experience in Vietnam. Yeah, that's so that's I, so wild. Only thing I can imagine. Is, oh, go ahead. No, no, I'm just yeah. Obviously, that's. Uh, I didn't know that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a, the only thing I can imagine really is like um, Bubba from Forrest Gump. Right. Literally. That's the only black GI I've ever followed in a film. Like, seriously. And, yeah. and maybe, oh. <laughs> so this is No, go ahead. No, I was just saying this was necessary to have like an actual real take um, on the black GI experience in Vietnam. Exactly. And I yeah. think that also warrants the runtime. As well, that that for me was how I reconciled it. Was like if this is the first uh, film about the Vietnam War, war from the perspective of of black GIs, then yeah, give me give me this three hour film about their experience, <laughs> about the, about multiple different soldiers from varied experiences, you know. Um, but mm-hmm. also, I will say one of the big things that I think stuck out to a lot of people were just the because Spike Lee is a film scholar unto himself, mm-hmm. you know, um, he is a cinephile, and all of the <laughs> Are they even illusions anymore to Apocalypse Now? Um, <laughs> I was going to say that. I mean, there was, the bar was literally named Apocalypse I Now. Was, yeah, I, I was just watching an interview with Spike Lee. Like I was cramming like literally 10 minutes before we started this recording. I was watching an interview with him and uh, somebody was asking him about that scene. And he was, he was like, that's a literal bar in uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, called Apocalypse Now that's a dance club. He didn't change it or alter it in any way. He just shot in that club. Um, wow. So that's kind of the commercialization of the war in, you know, in modern day Vietnam. And I thought that was amazing. Um, that that they, amazing. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, like, uh, the whole thing was to stop communism or whatever the BS excuse was. But the but I think capitalism is just rampant, so rampant now that they're just they're, it, their culture is based on catching in on this horrific thing that happened in their country thirty it years ago. Huh. Yeah, right. Wonder <laughs> it turned out that way. Right? <laughs> right. So be- between, the- I mean, yeah. I'm- Go ahead. No, no, just between, like, between, um, you know, its references to, you know, maybe the the zenith of 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 you not warm films, uh, apocalypse mm-hmm. now, and then also. Um, all of the comparisons that I've been seeing between it and uh, Treasure on the Sierra Madre. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found really interesting. Yeah, doesn't someone almost literally say we don't need badges or something? Yeah, 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 he does does do the badges line. Why, yes, they do. (laughs) Which I love. I absolutely love films that are are referencing uh, other epics throughout film history. The, they all they also they also throw in the the famous uh, she from the wire, which is just kind of a thing like few people besides Spike Lee can do. Just like 
it's not just a nod. It's just like a directly look at the camera and say, hey, remember that other thing? We're doing that here, <laughs> I, which I, I, I love that stuff. I think it's great. I feel I like Neil Whitlock Jr. is almost contractually obliged to throw that in on every movie he's in, though. <laughs> also, if you, if you don't stay till the end of the credits, they have a they have a shot after the credits that has the, the whole cast and crew doing one long sheet. <laughs> it's pretty great. I love that. <laughs> I actually, and it's crazy because, and I think uh, maybe a less skilled filmmaker, mm-hmm. I think sometimes you often see filmmakers like throw in allusions to be like, see, I've seen important films too. But the difference with Spike is that he not only is is like paying homage to the filmmakers that have come before him or even sometimes his contemporaries, but he's also furthering his own work through his like cinematography, through the blocking, the blocking in some of these scenes really got me the, through like the choreography. I was waiting for uh, my um, my dolly shot. I was, I the was double dolly. Did I miss it? Um. So, to my knowledge, it happens at the end with um. Oh, what's the 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 blood with the with the Vietnamese black daughter? Oh, Clark uh, Otis. Yes. Otis. Otis yeah, that's right. Otis, Otis and his daughter are in that shot. That's right. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's okay. That's the double dolly. I was yeah. I was waiting yeah, for I, it the whole movie too. <laughs> again, again, watching watching three in a row. It was in all three movies. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Is it in all of them? Mm-hmm. I'm almost like I'm trying yeah, to think. Yeah, of- it's it's in in a it's in it's in a. Brooklyn, she's like coasting down the street, and actually Spike Lee and the other like uh, paint huffer are like chasing her, and they're mm-hmm. running, they're moving in the background, but she's totally smooth on the dolly in the foreground, and then she actually floats up and away, which is a cool trick shot because mm-hmm. um, they like they like uh, they throw the bag over her face and kind of knock her out, and so she like kind of coasts off into the, the fantasy sequence. And um, well, Clockers, also- I forget where it is, but it's definitely in there. Yeah, yeah. Right. I need to go back and rewatch Clockers. It's been a while since I've seen it. But Spike also uses the dolly shot um, at the end of School Days in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Where um, Lauren, have you guys seen School Days? I have not. I have not seen School Days. I've seen some of oh, the I've the- seen some of the musical numbers out of context, but I haven't watched the whole movie. Right. Same. It's amazing. Um, you guys have to check it out. It really gives you an ex- the experience of what an HBCU is like, um, not only today, but definitely honing into like specific issues from the nineties and dealing with like um, issues of like identity and what that means mm-hmm. um, for a black college student, for the black elite. For mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an incredible scene between. Um, so for context, school days takes place at, um, at a fictionalized version of Spelman and Morehouse or of an HBCU. Mm-hmm. And it was also filmed largely on those campuses. Both uh, Kirsten mm-hmm. and I are Spelman alumna, so oh, nice. that's me. Oh my yeah. god, I enjoy that. Yeah, that's my that's uh, Spelman sister, uh, <laughs> the illustrious Spelman College. But so it takes place <laughs> over the course of a of a homecoming weekend on these college campuses, and Spike, of course, is a Morehouse alum. So, mm-hmm. um, but at the end of this homecoming weekend, and after you know all of the the drama that basically unfolds, and there are issues related to like colorism and elitism within the community. Um, there's like warring going on between like the like the woke faction versus like the fraternities and the sororities. Right. Um, yeah. And it's a musical. And, and well. it's a musical. It's absolutely lovely. Um, but there's a scene between um, five, several of the college students, including Lawrence Fishburne, and like local people who live in the historically black neighborhood that the colleges are situated. And Sam Jackson is one of them. And it's a really interesting conversation just about like elitism within the community and how much are we doing as 
you know, people who go to these institutions to give back to the community and vice versa. So, but I, back to the Dolly shot, I only bring it up because he also at the end of school days has Lawrence Fishburne on, I guess, like a, a crane. And it goes from being, it takes like a, like an almost magical realism turn at the end to where he's like, has Lawrence Fishburne ascend yeah. into the air basically mm-hmm. through the dolly shot so it's another time he uses it to kind of break through genre and tone nice actually uh uh black probably i mean i just watched five bloods but black Klansman is still probably my favorite of like the modern spike lee era i guess yeah. um the the dolly shot in that is just my favorite that's as good as it gets it just looks so cool beautiful <laughs> so fun. yeah i think of i've also Various- been reading a little bit about just uh, this film, The Five Bloods, as an action film as well. Uh-huh. And one of my other favorite, maybe, I'm not going to call it my absolutely favorite Spike Lee film, but it's definitely top three, uh, is Inside Man. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, 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 yeah. and the dolly shot in that is uh, one of my favorite uses of it that he has used. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was, I was going to ask everybody uh, the aspect ratios, mm. the changing... Uh, as a way of keeping track of the timeline, sort of, and then the tone shift too. What would what, what everybody think about that? Well, in a, in a way, like um, this is all kind of in the same uh, chapter, which is with Spike Lee, you kind of have to talk about this like formalist stuff that he does. He's like one of the masters of kind of like pointing to the frame, which some people mm-hmm. hate. Some people hate that Brian De Palma shit where you're, um, you know, breaking up the frame and doing crazy stuff. And I absolutely love that stuff. It's the greatest. Um, and Spike Lee um, just uses it so well. So I love the changing aspect ratio, the the flashbacks in 16 millimeter. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure we're going to get to in a minute, the not using any effects or anything on um, de- oh, right. the actors, which I'm sure we'll probably spend a chunk of time on because it's interesting. But I love that. I love anything that kind of makes you go like, Oh, wow. Interesting choice. Like if it's an interesting choice, I'm on board (laughs) regardless of if it's a maybe arguably not the greatest choice. But um, I I like that stuff. And there's a sequence early on in Five Bloods where it's um, it's uh, Hanoi, Hannah Mm -hmm. radio. Um, She's kind of talking directly to the camera, which is, you know, a little unusual in a movie like that. Um, She's kind of using a it's kind of a story device to kind of have her delivering this information then it cuts to like a comic book split screen of all the bloods. And um, there's just like a few things in a row where it's just like this little like 30 second uh, segment where you're just like, this is the most Spike Lee. And especially when you're talking about something that's so, so late in somebody like he's one of those guys. I mean, there's only, there's like 20 guys that kind of like reach that point where they're kind of like the household name director, like that kind of upper mm-hmm. pantheon of like Hitchcock level guys. Um, so I think it's really interesting with people like that to kind of reach that level to kind of be in the middle of their order, you know, pretty much going to be like the later era. Cause each one you turn on, you're like, is this the one where they're going to be like, not going to have it anymore. And, and you just have this built up, um, you've got this whole history of his filmography where he's kind of nodding to himself in addition to the mm. movies that he nodded to before he came along. And there, there's just a lot kind of like baked into, um, to watching it and, uh, I think it's I think it's fun to kind of like know a filmmaker in that sense, and you're on like movie a thousand or whatever, and you're kind of like I bet he's going to do this next, and then he does. <laughs> and it's still exciting every time you see it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, go ahead. It was pretty ingenious the way that he used um, the same yeah. characters to represent their younger selves. And I just simply thought he used he just did that because it would be just too confusing for the viewer to uh, recognize which one was which without using a yeah. sure. hundred thousand times. Um, yeah. So that just seemed more convenient, um, which I didn't mind at all. I also loved the changing of aspect ratios. That was my first one of the first things that I noticed. And because um, most of it's in color, you know, all of it's in color. So um, you really wouldn't be able to tell um, unless you use mm-hmm. like a different like um, filter right. for the film. Um, so, which I think he also kind of played with a little bit um, when he was doing the flashbacks. But it, yeah. was, it was great. I actually love the use of aspect ratio. And to your point about, you know, the choice between like casting under actors to play their past selves. I feel like, of course, the, the changing of the aspect ratio really helps to keep it clear as to where, mm. where we are in the timeline. But I also love how it effectively shows how their experiences are really like haunting them still in the present day. I mean, every time that you have a scene that takes place in the past and it's their, you know, older selves with their memories of Norman, of Norman. Yeah. It, it just really feels like he is haunting mm. them in a, mm. in a way, like haunting them in the, in the present day. And also at the same time, you know, they, when we do get cut to the past, I just, I feel like the, the choice to have them play their younger selves is really just a, like indicative of Spike's choice to show that their experiences didn't, weren't left in the jungle, that their experiences followed them out of it. So I felt like it, right. yeah. Oh, sorry. They still care. <laughs> I'm just um, acknowledging what Sydney's saying, and I totally agree. Um, they're still carrying that memory with them and they have been shaped um, into the people that they are today by those memories with Norman. And Norman is still very much also, a part of their real life experience. Literally yeah. to the point where one of the characters yeah. sees, and sees also, it just of him. I found it so interesting because at the same time by not casting, by not filming it as though like, oh, this is a literal flashback to things that have happened previously mm. by using the actual the, the present day actors to play past versions of themselves is showing that I think it's playing with um, how reliable are these memories? You know, like, is this how yeah. they're remembering him or, or is this how things actually took place, which I think was a really interesting choice. Absolutely. And I feel like it was kind of, and I could be wrong about this. Wasn't there a photograph towards the end where they are de-aged? Like, uh, at least a little airbrushed or something. Everybody looks younger in the photo, um, like their younger selves. Did I imagine that? Or great, not? great question. I felt the same way, <laughs> especially with, okay. um, with Norm Lewis, I believe, who played. Um, yeah, Norm Lewis who played Eddie. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. he in particular stood out to me as like, oh yeah, no, they must have like de-aged them in that photo. But I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure. It looked to be that way to me too. <laughs> Okay, yeah, because I was thinking like that was kind of Spike Lee underlining it. Like, look, I could have done this the whole movie. We could have done an Irishman here and made these guys look like they were eighteen or whatever. I'm so but happy uh, I'm so happy. exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. I've saw a couple of reviews that kind of honed in on that in kind of a negative way, and and one of them said as if they knew that it was a choice, and I couldn't confirm that, but 
I hope that it wasn't a budget choice. And if it was a budget choice, I hope something that they leaned into and figured they could work because I, and it's honestly kind of weird that more people don't do it. There's always been this obsession in movies going to flashbacks or just like, how do we do it? Do we cast the real actor's child? Do we find, do we do a casting <laughs> call for somebody that looks like them? And now you've got CG as kind of a third option. Do we do something totally insane? Make like a, a cartoon character that looks like them. Um, <laughs> but I, I think uh, it seems to bother some people that that choice in this movie, but I feel like it's one of those things where like, you notice it for about half a second and then you're kind of like, okay, got it. And you just, you clock that and you move <laughs> on and it's not a big deal. And um, like you guys are saying, which I didn't even fully think about, it actually makes tons of sense without overthinking it too much. It's like, that is how memory works. Like mm -hmm. if you think about 20 years ago and you're thinking about a memory with a friend that you still know, your mind does their current self. And the only exception to that is if somebody is in that memory that you haven't seen since then, then you do remember them when, as when you last saw them. So it's completely logical in a way that you would have um, everybody's old except for Chadwick Boseman because he didn't. He, there's no other. There's no other way that that's how that's how they have to remember him. So mm -hmm. um, it does seem like it's really effectively kind of filtering it through their actual memories, which um, which works a lot, I think. What is what? Yeah, that's interesting. No, no, no. no. Read that review. <laughs> um, sorry, Sydney. Because um, that's kind of like a shallow way to look at a budget. You know. <laughs> A budget issue is kind of very shallow way to look at a shallow way to look at that artistic choice. I wouldn't imagine that. Exactly. Yeah, they, they may have. They may be uh, legitimate. The they may have read that he uh, tried to do something and couldn't. But I did a quick googling it and couldn't find anything. So I kind of suspect that people are like, oh, they couldn't find the budget to do the de aging because people are used to it so quickly. Like, I mean, the Irishman just kind of put that in everybody's heads, which I think it worked fine in the Irishman, but. I think it puts that in everybody's heads that, oh, okay, that's what we do now. We, we, we digitally de-age. And so when somebody doesn't do it, you start to go like, oh, what, what a shame you couldn't find the budget for it. And it's like, well, sometimes it might be a creative decision. Right. Um, but see, here's, but, this, is, yeah. this is why I personally believe that this was absolutely not a budget decision. I think because, because of the conversation that has been started by the Irishman and the backlash that that <laughs> film received, because I personally will never be able to unsee a uh, young face, Robert De Niro's old body trying to keep trying to kick that shopkeeper. Like that's something that for me, it's like I cannot. I'm not gonna say it ruined the film for me, but it's just like, why did you guys? Why did you make him do this? Like it this, it didn't. It did not work. And to the point that 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 gif is like basically a meme at this point. So I I I can't imagine that going into this film that that wasn't at least a part of the conversation and so far as like should we de-age them well here's where it really didn't work <laughs> like here's, mm. here's where maybe maybe worked in because again i mean the irishman was highly nominated and won nothing so I, i'm not saying that like <laughs> awards are like a measure of of merit but at the same time i'm not sure if that film was rewarded for its use of de-aging technology and and further to that point you know i think that Perhaps if anyone were to bring up, you know, there being um, an issue with, with the budget and then being able to actually use this technology, I would like to believe that because of how the actors are used within the film, that this was a completely art artistic decision. I think, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that if it was only the use of aspect ratio to delineate between the two timelines or only, you know, they could have... They could have aged up um, uh, Chadwick Boseman's character, Norman. They could have 
mm-hmm. they could have decided to do that as well. So I, I just feel like it, it all clearly points to it being an artistic decision. And I, yes. And I, I hope yeah. that it was. <laughs> I, all, all that stuff is kind of is tricky and it's really always been tricky even before CG stuff. But now there's this new element where it's kind of hard to know what's going to kind of trigger people. Um, you can't help it. I mean, if something takes you out of the movie, it takes you out of the movie. So um, some stuff that doesn't bother one person is going to bother another. So I can't really, if somebody has an issue, if somebody's confused by the aspect ratio or by the changing or not changing the actors, um, you know, that happens. I mean, for me, like I kept noticing, I hate the digital blood splatter. Uh, That's exactly. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to hate it. Like, it's not that I like necessarily think that I'm, that I'm right. It's that I can't help it. It's that when, when I see it, it, it takes me out of the movie for a second because I'm like, whoa, what just happened? Somebody just shot an invisible cartoon character six feet in front of that actor. Uh, yep. <laughs> it, it just, it, it looks very, very, very weird to me. And <laughs> I wish that I could let it go, but I can't. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure other people feel the same about some choices that I liked. Right. <laughs> in the presence of all the digital blood splatter told me they had a budget for digital effects, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I don't think they were right? you know, skimming anything by not de-aging the people yeah but i guess it, it must be cheaper than doing it real or they wouldn't do it i guess right i i don't know a lot about that particular effect but i'm assuming that there's just too many problems with the squibs and it just um it makes life too difficult to bother and so they're just like the digital's good enough let's do it which i can't begrudge anybody but it's hard to watch right now because they haven't really gotten it right yet right i would i would like to believe that maybe it was um there was a choice to play up the action sequences to more of like a video game almost level, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I'm not going to argue like whether or not it works, but I definitely feel like it's one of those choices that reminds you that you're watching, like watching a movie. Um, and even early on in watching the film, there are so many stylistic choices that Spike makes within, you know, many of his films that point to, that I'm not going to say take you out of the film, but point to the effort that is being put forth in, in the film. You know, with right. um, with some of like the di- the dialogue and and the inclusion of stories about actual people. You know, I feel like, and then like then mm-hmm. superimposing an image of that person to point out that no, this actually happened. You know, to, right. to connect the story and the narrative to you know lived history, I feel like can sometimes work to not take you out of the film, but to really contextualize the message of the film. Mm-hmm. So I I go back and forth on. On. I feel that it's that it's really effective in this film. I go back and forth about how I feel about it. You know, mm-hmm. I think it takes like um, like an almost documentary style and puts it to a narrative style of filmmaking. But I found it really effective. Right. In this one. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I wanted to, I wanted to ask everybody then just uh, also what did you, how did you feel about it turning into an action movie at the end? Cause it, it struck me a little bit like adaptation mm-hmm. or something where um, the, <laughs> it, the screenwriters were like, okay, we're telling this story. Uh, I don't really know how to end this. Let's just, everybody shoots each other. Uh, and I understand <laughs> that it's about war, but also <laughs> like, is that, does that happen in modern day Vietnam? Like it, it took a real, um, a weird, kind of a weird turn in my head where it went from like a kind of realistic depiction of the, these guys' lives to, to like, I mean, Jean Renault literally is in it. So you're like, okay, well, I guess this is a, <laughs> uh, 
because it's now an action movie. I guess my my brain just had to make that switch over. Um, even when they weren't stepping on, like the landmines, I bought and I was like, okay, yeah, there's all these, you know, unexploded landmines in Vietnam. That makes perfect sense. Uh, we, we didn't even like just a quick sidestep. Didn't even touch on like that. That right, first like landmine sequence where they pull them off with the rope. Yeah. That is just what a great like. <laughs> how can like an old man like Spike Lee pull off such a great little moment like that? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, I, I wanted to talk about that scene because, um, okay, this always. you know how like Spike Lee <laughs> always has to talk about Morehouse. It's just like always in his films, right? And at, when he. <laughs> When the father would, with Delroy, he was trying to save his son. And he was like, it was a very intense moment. And he was like, what house? What, what school did he go to? And I was like, Spike Lee, please don't. Is this is this where you're really just going to like, he's going to say more house a couple of times. And then he, you're going to, you know, he's going to survive. And he's going to get out of the sticky situation. Like yes. the power of more yes. house come into this situation in Vietnam right now and save y'all. I'm so glad it turned into the other narrative where they gave history about this track runner. I was like, okay, Same. that is relevant to this situation. I was like, oh I was God. like, what is he gonna do here? Is he just gonna shout Morehouse and then he'll be like free and not step on this landmine um, and not explode? But you know, when they get that historical context about the runner, and I was like, okay, fly, it's going somewhere. Dude, somewhere. I had li- thank you. Now we can get out of there. That was <laughs> had- so hilarious. We were for all a second. I was cringing. I was oh like, God. Next. Also, I love that the son doesn't ever not have on a Morehouse t-shirt or hat. He is decked. He is decked in Morehouse gear. It does! And it gets progressively um, dirtier. Right. Yeah. And I also, I love how I feel like earlier when we were first introduced to David um, and his character, he's maybe introduced as like um, you know, Paul's like almost spoiled son. You know, like spoiled younger mm-hmm. son who doesn't quite get what they're doing there. Or at the very least, is just there for this this romp, you know, with his dad, mm-hmm. and in that and uses, you know, the emblem of Morehouse, this like elitist, this elite university, to kind of underscore that fact. So to then sure. subvert, you know, that connotation and use it as an empowering image, I found to be really, really quite powerful and a, and a great subversion of my own expectations. So that was that was nice. Sure, and the visual metaphor of him getting further from that reality, the dirtier it gets, and you know, the more in, encased in this new reality he's becoming with the violence and the mm-hmm. uh, disturbing. Yeah, like I, I always enjoy a nice visual shorthand. Yeah. I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I know what you're referring to, Josh, and I, I guess that stretch of the move that where it kind of turns like that, I, I guess that wouldn't be like my, my favorite part necessarily, but it also doesn't really bother me, but mm-hmm. I tend to really like um, tone shifts. I like when you kind of put your quarter in the movie machine and you accidentally get, you know, an extra, mm-hmm. <laughs> an extra genre. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, cause it already, um, I mean, uh, talking about him referencing other movies, um, I think the whole thing clearly has to be kind of like a little bit of a nod to Kelly's heroes, which is like, the big like war movie that secretly is actually about um, kind of a, a gold heist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember when I watched Kelly's heroes, it was great because you're kind of watching it. I mean, at least for me, I was watching it cause it was like, all right, let's watch another important war movie. Probably not going to be my favorite. And then as it starts, you're kind of like, 
oh shit, is this secretly a treasure hunt movie? Awesome. <laughs> uh, and so th- this kind of had that too, where it's just kind of like, oh, this is about treasure. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that you kind of have like, it's a, it's a war movie, but it's also kind of like a buddy movie. And it's also like a hunt for the gold movie. And then it's also this crazy big shootout. Um, I kind of like rolling with that. Um, but at the same time, I, 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 uh, I couldn't argue with your uh, point about it being kind of like the end of adaptation. <laughs> kind of gets a little bit ridiculous. Um, yeah. So I, I'm with you, but I also I partied with it. It was cool. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like honestly, I I I felt the shift coming just because I feel like he had laid mm-hmm. out enough breadcrumbs to lead to this point of like it's gonna get it's gonna get violent just between um mm-hmm. meeting the um the the French woman and the. What's, mm-hmm. what's the name of Lamb? The name of the organization? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Love so against minds and bombs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. So they are. Um, I think I, I like that he set that up that there's going to be landmines here. So we knew that that was coming, and I also feel like, man, the minute that um, that Eddie starts slowly backing up, it's like, oh man, here, uh-huh. here <laughs> we go. <laughs> but I also think it's spooky, like the fact that his death happened. Uh, the one hand so um so slowly because i think you can definitely like sense that it's coming but then also Mm -hmm. the swiftness with which it takes place and the swiftness with which they have to switch from our friend just died is dying and also uh my son is in mortal danger that Mm -hmm. i think really speaks to just like the danger of war in general the danger of this jungle and like the quickness with which they have to be able to one like grieve and problem solve at the same time i found to be mm-hmm. really beautiful but once once that happens it doesn't really stop right so, yeah then you're the foot's on the accelerator um yeah. did, did you did anybody notice who wrote this movie before spike lee and his writing partner got their hands on it no um it was these two dudes that wrote the rocketeer mm-hmm. back in oh, uh wow. Yeah, 91 and like the Flash TV show from the 90s. Wow. Um, yeah, so trancers, like all sorts of kind of garbage TV <laughs> from, from like my childhood they were responsible for. And uh, I uh, I just wonder how much of the action narrative was left over from their run on it, maybe. Like it was supposed to be more of a treasure hunt movie all the way through. And then mm. maybe altered it to make it a little more weighty and meaningful of a movie i that's speculation on my part i don't know and, but and Barker, I, just, like, yeah. I don't yeah i don't know <laughs> it's, um, it's, i just don't think it made it the way it is yeah anyway sorry go ahead no, it's also it's, like it, no, go ahead. Yeah. well it's also kind of like an explosion of um like in addition to it being uh kind of a new view of uh the black experience in vietnam I really liked the aspect of seeing this kind of post-war Vietnam, which has been in other movies. But I think that when you have the reaction to the GIs, um, you get this kind of different viewpoint. I'm not sure that I've seen something where it's um, modern Vietnam kind of reacting to the soldiers that came in coming back. And so Mm -hmm. the turning into an action movie is kind of where like everything kind of comes to a head. So it's kind of this like tension between Mm -hmm. obviously between the friends that's kind of coming to a head, but then also between, America and Vietnam's like unresolved uh, tension and all these things, uh, you know, if you want to over into, which I do, uh, then <laughs> it's, it's um, th- turning to an action sequence could easily be seen as kind of like all that stuff is just literally blowing up. Like it's, it's kind of reaching its boiling point and, and uh, 
turning into this big explosive finale, which which kind of fits just all the tension on the table. Definitely. And I also really love the the, the fact that it does become this like treasure hunt action film because I feel like it mm-hmm. underscores the the tie between capitalism and war. Right. Particularly with this one. Right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and the only thing I would kind of do, I would say like it, it kind of has it both ways though, a little bit in terms of like the beginning of the movie seems to clearly say like American culture seemed to win in terms of, I mean, win is anybody really a winner when it's like all Walmarts all over the world, but it's uh, just the, 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 what do you call it? Um, uh, homogenization mm-hmm. of like businesses all over the world. And uh, uh, so it, it seems like, I don't know, I didn't catch a lot of tension from the Vietnamese side of things at the beginning of the movie in terms of like them holding any grudges or having any anger towards well, uh, um, America. I was, I was going to say there was, um, there, there's clearly this tension that is, that is set up from the beginning when we meet, mm-hmm. when they are in the Apocalypse Now bar and you have the young man mm-hmm. who comes up asking for money. And how that turns. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the floating and market scene is kind of the big works. one because you kind of have the thing where <laughs> yep. um, there's, there's, a, there's a acceptance of the Americans as long as you're mm. kind of contributing to tourist culture. Right. But as soon as it's like, no, I'm not buying anything from this market, the guy turns on him pretty quickly, which is immediately fed into Paul's own racism. Yep. And so right. it just within seconds, like what was just under the surface a second ago is all of a sudden this like full on like verbal battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can tell that there's 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 a lot of like resentment both ways, but it's buried enough that kind of like everybody can kind of carry on a normal like I'm the tourist. You're the you know establishment that I'm touristing you know, like basic friendship or or false friendship until something kind of like brings something specific to light. Uh, People are pretty quick a couple of times to say like, you killed my parents, you know? So so that's kind of like right there. Like the the guys that kind of turn on them at the end, you can tell that um, there's a lot in there about like, um, uh, like I have the right to this. I mean, even the entire plot is kind of based on that gold was going to a village and, it's based on them saying like, well, we've done enough that we deserve this gold. And that's in almost everybody in the movie. Cause the, the guys that are kind of the bad guys, um, which is, you know, a classic Spike Lee thing. None of the bad guys are, are that simple of a bad guy, but um, those guys are all again, like as soon as at first they seem like classic, you know, coming up with trucks and guns, but then you can tell pretty quickly that they're real people with problems and, a lot of their um, we're stealing this back is because they're like, well, we have a right to that. So everybody kind of feels like they have a goal, which is kind of representative of their own version of like, we've been wronged here. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think it's important to bring that perspective up. Um, like this is an Americanized homogenous retelling of the Vietnam War and I was reading reviews yep. mm-hmm. um, especially on Twitter that's like my go-to right um, about like real thinking um, and you know with some of the reviews you know I was just going to scrolling down the feed and you know people were saying you know this is an amazing movie let's but where's yeah. the perspective right. of the Vietnam War from Vietnamese people and when are we going to start seeing that mm-hmm. um, narrative uh mainstreamed right and so if you don't mind i wrote down a couple of books with uh 
these authors and I'm going to butcher their names, but I think it's important, you know, sure. in this conversation to bring that, to have a platform um, where we definitely understand that um, what we're seeing and what we're reviewing is actually um, one perspective of the story. And although it, you know, Spike Lee does bring in different characters that also um, may align more with the yep. Vietnamese mm -hmm. perspective, at the end of the day, it's an American story. Um, and so, you know, Dragonfish is one great uh, book that was written by Vu Tran um, about the Vietnam War, best-selling. Uh, the Sympathizer, Viet Tan Nguyen. The Refugees, also mm -hmm. Viet Tan, N-G-U-Y-E-N. -E uh, the Mountain Sing, um, and also The Best We Could Do. So I just encourage anybody who's, you know, listening to this podcast to hopefully, you know, go check out a book or go see a movie that talks about the Vietnam War from the Vietnamese perspective because it was such an oppressive, um, you know, hist time in history that, you know, we're they are still yeah. um, uh, recovering from and healing from. Um, and so I think a part of the healing process well is making sure that these Absolutely. voices are Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted to, uh, so, yeah, I think we uh, covered, you know, the, the Five Bloods pretty well here just in terms of uh, dissecting it. I, I wanted to get back to his, something I've said back at the very beginning of the, the podcast. Um, so I'm a, I'm a comic book geek as well as a movie geek. Cool. And um, there's a, uh, there's a series called global frequency. I don't know if anybody's read that. Um, that's uh, the, the creative right now because of other things, but uh, it's about the unexploded landmines of history. That's kind of the tagline of it. Mm. Um, and this movie, movie made me think about that. Um, yeah, I also was watching the Watchmen HBO series that they just put over the paywall this weekend, mm -hmm. um, just for Juneteenth weekend. Um, and that show right. had a very similar scene to the Hanoi um, Anna scene in Defy Bloods, where the Germans are throwing propaganda down on the black soldiers in World War One, mm -hmm. saying like, "Why are you fighting?" For America, you know, we would treat you much better in Germany <laughs> before the Nazis showed up. So uh, at that time, the offer was valid, probably. But um, so, yeah, I was wondering, were you uh, uh, double consciousness? Was that the, the phrase used at the beginning? Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, please. I don't term, I'm not familiar uh, with that term. I'd like yeah. to hear more how this movie addresses that and uh, how it plays into that. Totally. So I think the scene that really just um, uh, just like <laughs> personifies that term, right, was when the radio host yeah. was informing uh -huh. the black GIs of MLK's assassination. Um, and she was basically in a very poetic way, saying, yeah. you know, black mm -hmm. GI, and she kept repeating black GI. It was almost like a poem. Like, why are you here? Um, you just make up 11% of the American population and 35% of the GIs fighting um, mm -hmm. in the uh, in the war. Um, and you are murdered at home. Mm -hmm. Why are you murdering people here that are in your same position? You know, where's the empathy, basically, is what she was saying. And I think, you know, double consciousness, the idea is that um, we have to as African-Americans, a lot of times we're living in two identities, right? One consciousness is here, you know, we're American. We were, uh, you know, we built this country and, you know, we belong here. And another one is 
you know, yeah. we are, uh, you know, lost kin, basically, is that, idea that we don't have memory of our motherland and that has been stolen from us. And the very country that we mm-hmm. built is the one that is contributing to our oppression um, systemically and institutionally. And I think that's super important, you know, now and especially, you know, uh, since the murder of George Floyd and really since the senseless murders of black peoples since the beginning, you know, since mm-hmm. literally 1619, yep. which is also mm-hmm. referenced in the film when the first slave came to Jamestown, Virginia. Um, so it's like, how are we, how are we navigating our, and we go back to this word of navigation. How do we navigate these spaces um, where we are mm-hmm. told to fight for a country? Right. Uh, for us? I tell you, this was um, something eye opening for me uh, that, you know, I'm, I, I, I was in the South Carolina educational system, public educational system. So maybe I didn't get the best. Yeah. Education. Um, oh, I see. But uh, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you guys hear that the, that the uh, civil war was actually about state rights? You're not alone. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Oh, no. Uh, the crazy part is I grew up in the yeah. Chicago public school really? system and I too didn't learn about a lot of this either. So. It, right. Yes. So this past week, uh, I and I admitted this to Sydney earlier that I hadn't seen Do the Right Thing. I started at Malcolm X and never went backwards from that in Spike Lee's filmography. And even seen like 13 of his movies, I never went you know, <laughs> earlier than Malcolm X. So I watched Do the Right Thing this past week, and that hit me so hard that nothing has changed since 1988, 89, whenever that movie was made. Um, yep. That it's, yeah, I was just like, Oh my God. I, and you know, I was 10 years old, you know, when that movie came out. So I don't know how socially conscious I would have been <laughs> anyway, but uh, it was just a horrifying shock to me. Yeah. That uh, they, that movie could have come out this past year and it would have been even more relevant and uh oh, that is yeah. depressing as yeah well. I've, I've also um, been watching like a lot of movies by black filmmakers which i'll kind of touch on as we kind of sign out but uh yeah it's absolutely it's just great like nothing will make you feel like a stupid white person more than realizing <laughs> that these conversations have been happening uh you know there's literal quotes sometimes that'll come up in these movies that are so old and you're just like oh whoops like i just saw somebody say that on twitter or whatever last week and thought it was really profound and a new take and it's like no, business um, since you know black exploitation movies were sneaking it in basically. So it's mm-hmm. the crazy part is these conversations have been taking place since Oscar Micheaux. <laughs> like these these conversations right. have been taking place since you know pre cinema, and I, I mm-hmm. think it really just speaks to the power of the medium itself to be able to communicate these ideas to a to such a broad audience that you know whoever saw do the right thing in in eighty nine you know maybe maybe kind of got mm-hmm. it then and maybe because you just saw it you know now like a week ago you're understanding it now mm-hmm. too so there is something like timeless about about these films and it particularly about these messages yep. and i was i was also now go ahead and timeless is right because go ahead um timeless is right because you know and uh, do the right thing, we still ask the question, you know, why did they burn down, you know, the shop rather than Radio Raheem? Why did they kill mm-hmm. um, Radio yeah. Mike? Radio, Radio Raheem, right, Radio Raheem. 
Um, and I think that's so pertinent to like literally this last week we're asking like, why are people rioting? Why are people burning things down? And we're not asking, you know, why did they kill George Floyd? We're not tackling. The yeah. Why do they, why did they kill Rashad Brooks? You know? Um, so I yeah. think that's happened. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, Josh and I were kind of talking right. on, on just chat after he watched do the right thing. Cause it's just, it's a, I wish that I could re-experience just watching that for the first time. Cause watching that movie, I mean, just without even getting into the politics, which the whole thing about Spike Lee is that there's so much entertainment that the politics just kind of like goes in there with, you know, it's, it's just an amazing delivery system because his movies have the most kinetic energy like you'll ever see. So they're just, they're so watchable and you, you never like feel like you're being, you know, preached to really because everything is just like, so uh, it's just popping like crazy. Uh, that times a thousand, because it's just like the most colorful, like fast, fun, exciting movie. And it buries just like stuff that you'll think about for the rest of your life. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I was talking to him about how, when I first saw it, I was probably only 12 or 13 and just how interesting it is to kind of watch it at one age and then watch it later and kind of realize how that stuff's been sort of percolating with you. Um, and then also realize how you sort of change. Cause I, I specifically remember being confused by the ending, um, which of course is because I was kind of blinded by not really knowing the full extent and the full weight of everything going on. I was like, I don't really understand why um, Mookie is instigating all this because he knows Sal's not that bad of a guy. Uh, and so when you watch it without this like full knowledge, um, then it sits with you and you think about it and then you watch it again and you're kind of like, okay, I understand a little bit more and you'll never cash in on absolutely everything that's there, but you're always going to kind of like keep learning from it, which is amazing for a movie. That's basically a fun comedy for like uh, about 70 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, um, I wanted to give, I, 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 promised and threatened at the beginning that we could all talk about uh, other uh, films and other filmmakers that uh, kind of um, were inspired by Spike Lee or uh, obviously he opened the door for a lot of uh, black filmmakers in the independent film movement, like the Miramax years or whatever. I, I can't say Miramax anymore. Anyway, uh, you know, just the, uh, let's say the indie years, let's say the nineties, late eighties, early nineties. Um, and uh yeah i was just wondering um i know uh kirsten you're uh the the cinematographer on crooklyn is also a director right uh, uh arthur uh, i forgot his name arthur Java, yeah t- uh, talk about him arthur yeah sell, sell me <laughs> right he came out of the la rebellion um which was basically like the black movement of filmmakers that uh you know, graduated from UCLA and started realizing there was a lack of diversity um, and inclusion in the um, narratives that were happening on screen, right? And so they went to make sure that their stories were being told and represented as well. So, you know, one person who came out of that and who we just, you know, honor, who we bow down yeah. to, <laughs> me specifically, is Julie Dash, um, who's now Professor Bellman. Um, and she actually, along with Arthur, Arthur Jaffa, was a cinematographer. They made a film called Daughters of the Dust talking about, um, and it was the most widely released film, uh, independent film that a, a widely distributed film um, for a black woman, that a black woman has made, right? Um, at that time, which was in the early 90s when it was released. Um, uh, and so that was, you know, she was basically an icon for the movement. Um, 
that was the first time a black woman had ever been that widely distributed um, uh, mm-hmm. movie, Daughters of Dust, you know, ran film festivals. It was great. Um, and now it's on Netflix. You can watch it. But uh, it's about a Gullah Geechee family who is coping with the idea of leaving their um, island to go on the mainland in the early 20th century. And the mainland is referring to, you know, the actual continental U.S. Um, and they're trying to, they're grappling with identity and basically like, do we stay here and preserve our culture or do we, um, you know, conform to society so mm. that we can, uh, I guess, progress? And it's like, it, it asks the question, well, what is progressing? Is progressing living um, preserving your culture and being with family and being happy or is it going basically into this industrialized world that has been made up to be some sort of like um, pinnacle of like mm-hmm. success when really it's just like a capitalistic um, oh, I see America as a capitalistic <laughs> uh, just like, yeah culture and just uh, just I mean uh, hey let's call, let's call a thing a thing just a dreadful and I yeah, I say that because like I put myself in the movie and I'm like, I don't don't go to the mainland. <laughs> Stay on the island where you are, you know, needed. And I guess I'm just very close to the idea because I live in Savannah and the Golokichi people are, you know, very yeah. plentiful here. But we can see that they're being gentrified um, and they're being taken out of their, uh, you know, their homes, their ancestral homes, and it's being, you know, rental properties are just coming up and people are buying out um, their land. And so I get very emotionally attached to the movie. But anyway, the LA Rebellion, Arthur Jaffa, um, Spike Lee was very much inspired by Arthur Jaffa. And uh, they have worked together for, you know, many projects. Um, And the LA Rebellion, I would totally, those filmmakers, uh, let's see, Bush Mama came out of that, um, Bless Their Little Mm -hmm. Hearts, Oh, uh, killer yeah. of sheep, you know, movies such as these. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm X's favorite movie. What is it? With Abby Lincoln. He is uh, only a man. Not, with Ivan Dixon. Not nothing a but man. a man. Yeah. Anyway. Nothing but a man. I have not nothing seen nothing but a man, but yeah. I was literally just looking at it because I've have been kind of it? obsessed with Ivan Dixon uh, recently. Um, I, I've also been looking at yeah, mm. just tons of stuff, which. Um, Well, first of all, uh, just before we totally walk away from Spike Lee, just talking about other Spike Lee stuff, have any of you guys seen Passing Strange? No. No, I don't think so. So Passing Strange is like my favorite Mm -hmm. weird little Spike Lee thing. And um, it's kind of extra relevant now because they just said that he's going to do David Byrne's American Utopia, like Broadway show. He's Mm -hmm. he's doing a movie version of that that's going to be on HBO, I think, later this year. Um, And... Uh, Passing Strange is by this musician, Stu, um, who's not particularly well-known, um, but he's uh, great. And uh, he was in a band called The Negro Problem for uh, a while in the 80s. And um, cool. he's just a very interesting uh, guy. And he he wrote a musical that was kind of like an off-off-Broadway kind of thing. Um, and it's a really interesting setup. Like, Stu is on stage, and he's, like, playing his songs – the actors kind of take over the songs. And so he's sort of doing like these interstitials, almost like a house band would. Um, But I mean, it's like a full on like stage musical about um, growing up black in like the church system and then moving to Amsterdam and kind of, and and Berlin and kind of like going from this, like, uh, you know, 
I think it's probably like a, like a Baptist upbringing, like a classic um, upbringing to having your mind kind of blown by art and, um, and sexuality and all kinds of stuff. And so Spike Lee did the movie version of the stage musical, which is always, uh, you know, there's, you can basically count the versions of that that work really well. I mean, Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense is the greatest and Passing Strange, I think is just as good in terms of how you film it in a way that actually is really cinematic. Um, so Spike Lee just like absolutely brings his like Spike Lee-ness to it as opposed to what a lot of people do with that stuff, which is kind of just set a camera and, you know, let it play out like a stage musical. He really mm -hmm. makes it into a movie that really works even though it is being performed. Um, so I, that's, it's great. I love Passing Strange a lot. Mm -hmm. So if, uh, if you're into Spike Lee and haven't caught that one, just in general, that's one I would really recommend. And it'd be a good primer to what I guess will be kind of his next quote unquote movie, which is this David Byrne thing. Um, mm -hmm. so that's great. And, uh, going off from him, um, I, I've got such a crazy long list that I'm probably just going to skip it and say, um, I'll, I'll give, I'll throw in my, I'll throw in my Instagram and I'll leave, which will, it's uh, JJ by Cuspid. Um, and I'm going to try to start posting some of these just because I've been studying up on them. And I guess I wanted to ask you guys, cause I'm curious, a thing that's been really on my mind in the last couple of weeks is kind of awakening to the idea of this stuff. And to tell you what I mean, like, I guess, um, in the past, hesitant to um to kind of say you know to kind of hashtag in on like um we're checking out black filmmakers and even like when people do like female filmmaker friday um i liked the idea of it but in my mind it was like you want to privately diversify and definitely spread the word about movies that are more diverse but to actually kind of like put an underline on it and um I, you know, in, until recently, I'm saying I had an issue with that that I'm just now realizing was way too limited. And I felt like it was reductive. I felt like it was kind of saying that black film or female film was a genre instead of just an incidental thing about a movie. Um, and I guess for me personally, what's been kind of changing about that in the last, I mean, it's honestly been kind of a slow burn over a year at least, um, Partially, it was like the Oscars continuing to not really have any diversity or or just having like one token example. Um, and then the other thing is I was looking at lists of films by black filmmakers, like on Letterboxd, you can pretty easily find lists like that. And it's disturbing. I mean, like even when you find ones that are extremely well-researched and they throw in like experimental films and short films and ones that seem like they've really thrown in everything they can, I couldn't anything that capped out over like 1200 movies. Whereas if you tried to make a list of movies by white male sand, you know, I mean, you literally, it's, it's not a task you can take on. So I guess that is what kind of made me realize, okay, if you just coast and just kind of assume everyone's going to um, privately, you know, make sure that they're watching a wide array of stuff, then what happens is uh, nothing. I mean, it just, everything stays the same. The status quo continues to kind of like, just keep that hold on movies and things change, but just so slowly that they might as well not be changing at all. So I guess for me, it's been this moment of kind of like, all right, screw it. I'm going to start specifically going out of my way to um, look up black filmmakers and tell people you should watch this movie by a black filmmaker, which is something that I felt like who the hell am I to do up until recently. But I want to know if, what you guys think about that. 
Uh, well, it's yeah. necessary for you to say that one. <laughs> Sorry, please say which part. Of please it. do. Um, it's necessary for you to tell people okay. watch this movie by a black filmmaker, um, and just give um, make sure that they understand that you know the lack of representation is just due to like systemic discrimination that has just been prevalent in all industries, but specifically one such as the film industry because it is. Um, it's relation to power and money, you know, to make a film, you would need a lot of times funds and just black people as we just have not been, have, mm-hmm. have as much access to generational wealth um, yeah. as of our place in society. So, uh, but it's happening. It has been happening. Um, the LA rebellion was definitely a start of black narratives being put at the forefront and, you know, being uplifted um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a work in progress. And as a black filmmaker myself, who mostly deals with documentary, um, subjects, I definitely feel that, um, we need allies. We totally need allies who don't look like us, but who watch our films, who support us, um, as black creatives. So thank yeah. you for yeah. doing that. Work. Yeah, well, like I, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to try to try to spotlight some of these because I've, I mean, I've been having an amazing time watching these. And again, as much as obviously it's it's not a, a genre, if you can find one thing that does kind of stand out, especially if you're going back to what you're talking about, that L.A. scene and, and stuff before maybe the 80s and, and but even beyond that, really, um, you're looking at films that if they have anything in common, it's that they're being made with maybe a little bit more purpose. Because if you're just kind of like a random uh, white male director, you're going to sometimes make a movie because it's Tuesday and that's your job. Um, And so you kind of get these movies where it's like uh, this guy uh, or woman needed to make this movie. And and, and so if you can define them at all, you kind of get that aspect of kind of like these are movies that really like have the the fingerprints of somebody that like fought to get this out there, Mm -hmm. Um, which can be said about a lot of independent film, too, obviously. But. Um, you do have kind of like a tighter hold on that kind of like this movie has to happen. Um, so knowing, knowing that that's a, a, a good thing to kind of spotlight, um, I'll just throw out real quick. Like I've been looking Michael Schultz who did like in the seventies, oh, yeah. which is kind of like an American graffiti kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And, um, he also did a lot of really crazy comedies like, um, well, he did like Car Wash, which is like a hangout comedy, and it's really goofy and fun. And um, he did uh, the famous Last Dragon, which is an insane yeah. like '80s martial arts <laughs> fantasy that I just watched, and um, it's a cult classic for sure. But definitely underseen in the sense of just it's one of those movies that you just you know, I mean, it's it's a total ride, and I can't imagine anybody not having fun watching that movie. Um, so he he's great, and then. Uh, in Car Wash, we just talked about Ivan Dixon. Ivan Dixon is kind of one of the main characters in Car Wash. And he's mm-hmm. the thing about Michael Schultz is he makes a lot of fun comedies, but they always have this like undercurrent of tragedy and, and kind of bit. So Car Wash is literally just dudes hanging out at a car wash, but there's definitely uh, some political stuff just like right under there. Um, and Ivan Dixon plays kind of the most heartbreaking character. And he yeah. directed um, The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Um, which oh, yeah. is just uh, an, uh, like, it's crazy. Like you talk about like seeing stuff where you didn't realize this was being talked about back then. I mean, 
that movie is completely, it's almost like a guidebook to overthrowing uh, the police. And it's, I mean, it's anarchy. Like it's crazy to see because it's, uh, my my favorite part is it ends and it says rated PG and you're like rated PG like the, there's nothing offensive in it but it's like the straight up anarchist cookbook like it's it's he, he most most people would kind of sensationalize it to make it seem like it was kind of tongue in cheek or something and it is kind of like a satire like it it starts out um, Josh was just talking about this on the Filmhouse Facebook but uh, it starts out with a guy who joins the CIA only because they have to fill a quota. Um, and then he kind of like learns their secrets and then goes and kind of militarizes a uh, neighborhood um, to kind of, you know, take over the man, basically. But it's it's not sensationalized at all. It's super matter of fact. And once the satire kind of gets out of the way, it's almost like a literal like how to of how to like mobilize your community um, against oppression. And it is hardcore. Like it, it, it doesn't screw around at all. Um, uh, William, William Greaves did, did Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. That's a great, like, outside-the-box movie. Charles Lane made a movie called Sidewalk Stories that's really out there and crazy. Um, and then uh, you mentioned Killer of Sheep, Charles Burnett. That's a super interesting, yeah. like, the most indie guy you will ever oh, yeah. see. What's that? That's part of that black film. Mm-hmm. I would say it's considered – have you um, heard about, like, the black yes. neorealist, actually? Uh, John so it's kind of like based off the Italian neorealism, you know, era, and it has to deal, it deals specifically with African-Americans also tackling their new reality in a newly integrated society of America um, and the hardships that come with that. And Killer of Sheet is a great example of what a black neorealist film would be. Would um, and uh, we're, we're running a little low on time. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to, uh, uh, John, if you have more recommendations, uh, I'll, I'll let you uh, do a, uh, plug at the end. Yeah, I'll throw it. And then just also the other thing to think about right now is that a lot of these movies, as we've kind of mentioned a couple of times, are super accessible right now, which is extra crazy because a lot of these movies have been like lost. Like Cane River mm -hmm. is one that uh, Criterion's been pushing a lot, which was essentially a lost movie for like 40 years. And now you can watch it for free. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of movies like that. Uh, Daughters in the Dust, I think, is outside of Criterion's paywall now. Um, so just because of everything going on, all these companies have kind of made these movies available. So that's part of why it makes it really easy to study up on this stuff is because all of a sudden movies that were impossible to see 20 years ago and weren't being treated with any respect at all in terms of uh, restoring them and everything are now like very properly in the right place and easy to watch. And, uh, so you can kind of, you, you can spend ages now just watching stuff that's without even having an account anywhere. Mm. Um, uh, Sydney, I wanted to give you a chance um, to to make any recommendations uh, that you would like to yeah. uh, before we sign off. I have just been really enjoying this. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so bring it back to fight. Um, some of my favorite films of his, uh, one of my favorite films of his is actually a remake from a black exploitation film from 1973 called Ganja and Hess. It's a <laughs> it's a horror black exploitation film. <laughs> about vampires cannot recommend it any nice. higher but his remake is called the sweet blood of jesus it came out in 2014 nice. beautiful yeah. um, absolutely love that film um what else and as far as other black filmmakers that i love uh casey lemon is one of my favorites uh she directed eve's mm -hmm. bayou uh, from 94 it's one of my favorite movies which i would describe as like a black gothic horror not horror black gothic film black southern gothic film mm -hmm. uh most recently she of course directed harriet yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. um but thank you um also uh justin <laughs> simeon i'll always throw it back to justin simeon i feel like his film 
uh, Dear White People is one of the greatest works to come out of the last few years. I think that film was maybe marketed in a really interesting way. It was marketed as a comedy. And if you watch it back, it is funny, but it is not a comedy. <laughs> um, whereas <laughs> I feel like the adaptation, the, the TV adaptation for Netflix is more of a, has more comedic elements to it, but I cannot recommend his film, Dear White People, higher. Um, also, I'm very excited for Nia DaCosta's uh, newest film to come out, Candyman. And as a Chicago native, just saying his name out loud is like sacrilege, but I cannot. And I'm also, I'm a fan of horror films, a recent fan of, of some horror films, but I'm very <laughs> excited for this sequel, maybe sequel to Candyman to come out. But um, she also wrote and directed a film called Little Woods. Highly recommend. Um, what else is on my list? Oh, also uh, to shout out to um, a filmmaker who is currently producing a web series that I cannot recommend more highly by Nia, Nina Lee, and it's called Sorry About That. Uh, that's available online. I will also link everything in my social, which I, I will announce at the end of this, the end of this haul. Um, I'm also really excited for the announcement that uh, Kenya Barris and Pharrell are teaming up to create and produce a Juneteenth musical. Mm. Also, happy Juneteenth. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Um, yes. Yeah, I think that will wrap it up for me. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and start with you then. Uh, where can people, Sydney, find your your work, your uh, videos, or wherever you want to point people? Plug away. Right. So my name, my full name is Sydney Wild Harris. My Instagram is Sydney Wild Harris. C Y D N I I W I L D E Harris H A R I S. Um, my Twitter is Sydney Wild. All the same way. Um, and I also have a Vimeo channel where you can find my videographic work, which is all linked to my Instagram and, and Twitter. So if you find me on social, you are sure to find me shamelessly self-promoting myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kirsten, where can people find your stuff? Lovely. Um, I just want to say, <laughs> oh my God, yes, Sydney to all of those movies. Um, and so my Instagram is Instagram.com slash I don't know. is that even a thing? People on the internet for Instagram. I'll just give you a name. It's K-I-R-S-T-E-N. My first name, I-S, Kirsten is underscore here. Um, and then you can find a link to my uh documentary page that I am um uh, uh working on now. Actually, I'm finished and I'm in um the distributing process, distribution distribution process of the film. It's called Going oh, Home. It's about African American nice. funeral homes, um, funeral businesses, and yes, as they navigate, uh, as they help with their communities navigate uh, life and death. So I'm very interested. I'm very interested in making that a feature. But right now, it's a short, um, and it will be released soon. My Vimeo is Vimeo.com/slash Kirsten Alexandra K I E R S T E N. Alexandra, and then you can also find me on LinkedIn. Excellent. Uh, uh, Mr. Ferrer, uh, what about yourself? Uh, Instagram, J. I'm going to throw up some of the soon to uh, take a look at and where you can stream them and everything. And um, I have some stuff coming out eventually, but don't hold your breath. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Alrighty. Um, well, uh, does anyone have any last words they want to say before I sign out? No, thank you so much for putting all this together and for giving oh. us a space to highlight uh, Black voices and Black art. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, this, the pleasure was all mine. And uh, it, I really enjoyed this movie. I wanted to say uh, for I'm not going to do all my recommendations. I'll put them up at uh, in the film house, Greenville, South Carolina, Facebook group or uh, the film house GVL on Instagram. Uh, but if I had to name one underrated Spike Lee movie, I would say get on the bus doesn't get any credit anymore. Mm. And it, <laughs> was maybe one of my favorite movies when I was in middle school, early high school. I watched that movie like every day on HBO when it came on. So uh, <laughs> if you like 12 Angry Men or you just like watching like a ton of great actors in one movie in one setting, having a discussion uh, for two hours, I know it doesn't sound enthralling, but man, that's a good movie. Anyway, uh, anyway, I want to thank all my guests. Uh, thank you listeners for uh, hanging out with us. Um, and we'll see you next time on the Film House, the podcast. Bye.